Dave Forty here, big ruling from the United States Supreme Court. They struck down New York law restricting the ability to carry guns in public. So this should have massive repercussions. Let's check in with Tucker Carlson. Good evening and welcome to Tucker Carlson. Tonight, the true measure of character, a wise man once said, is not whether you make a mistake, all of us do, but whether you learn from that mistake. With those words in mind, we'd like to begin tonight with an admission. It's contrition night on Fox News. It is time to reassess our view of Kamala Harris. Now, if you watch the show, you know that for more than a year now, we've had a pretty conventional understanding of this country's first black slash Indian slash part Canadian Perhaps vice president something... who also happens to identify as a woman. Now, we've assumed that Kamala Harris was historically unpopular because she's historically incompetent and fake. We assume she earned her low approval numbers. And we're not alone in that. Lots of other people have come to the very same conclusion. There's currently a debate among software engineers about whether Harris is even of biological origin or instead the product of a classified government AI project gone wrong. We don't know the answer, but we certainly understand the question. She's that synthetic. So again, until the other day, we assumed that people don't like Kamala Harris because she's highly unlikable. Keep in mind that even her own husband kisses her with a mask on. To us, that seemed like a pretty clear sign. But we're here tonight to tell you that assumptions can change, even assumptions rooted in overwhelming evidence and observable reality. But we're here sometimes, and this happens, your entire worldview can flip upside down instantly, invert in a flash of light. Ask Saul of Tarsus. Our road to Damascus experience came when we saw this clip of Joy Reid from MSNBC doing a drive-time radio show. Watching it, we realized the problem isn't Kamala Harris. The problem is us. So take a look at this. Open your mind a little bit and see if you don't come to the same life-changing conclusion that we did. Here's Joy Reid. I think for Kamala Harris, she's had like the triple problem of being a woman, and so people not being willing to respect her the way they would respect a male vice president, of being black, which we already know that the, what that carries with it is the anti-blackness comes, you know, with the package, and then also being vice president at a time that is really, really difficult. Joy and I talk about this all the time. Madam Vice President, and you know this, Charlene, she black black, okay? Yes. She went to Howard, she AK, and when she talks to you, yeah. it is, I mean, she sounds so like regular. Me. She's so regular she and really approachable, is. and I just, it's unfortunate that more people don't, don't see, see that. It. And there's also just the dumbing down of the American electorate. You know, people don't understand civics, they don't yeah. understand politics, they don't understand how things work. Did you hear that? Have you internalized it? Have you brought it deep inside? Let it marinate a little bit. People who don't like Kamala Harris are sexist, obviously, because like Admiral Rachel Levine, she identifies as a woman, too. They're also racist because Kamala Harris is the daughter of a Jamaican college professor. Duh. And by the way, they're also stupid by definition. They know nothing about civics or American politics. It's the dumbing down of America. Unlike Kamala Harris, you don't, quote, understand how things work. So the takeaway is Kamala Harris isn't unpopular because she's a bad person. She's unpopular because you're a bad person. You're the problem. Your racism is hurting Kamala Harris's political career. Damn you, bigot. And then we realize, how's this for mind bending? Joy Reid was talking about us. And then we broke down and shed the bitter tears of self-awareness. And our journey of education began. We wanted to know more. So we found an interview that Joy Reid recently did with a black supremacist website called The Root, a website that's now a permanent fixture in our favorites tab. 
Reed is the child of well-educated African immigrants, grew up in a white neighborhood in Denver, and went to Harvard. So naturally, she's got a gut-level understanding of the historic black experience in America, the way you do when you're from Denver and went to Harvard. You just feel it. It's just part of you. The way it's part of Kamala Harris after growing up in Montreal. As Joy Reid put it, quote, Kamala is just a regular sister, in the same way people would always say that Michelle Obama is like your sister if your cousin became first lady. Kamala Harris is like if your cousin became vice president of the United States. I think she doesn't get to show that personality often enough, and so people haven't had a chance to know her. You following this? So Kamala Harris is like your sister in the same way that Michelle Obama would be like your sister if your sister was your cousin and also married to the president. Why hadn't we realized that before? Well, as Joy Reid pointed out, quote, most of the media is still white and male. Of course, those damn white males always hiding the sister-cousin connection. That's what they do. But for us, the veil had been lifted. We could see for the first time what our racism had blinded us to for so long. And the truth hurt. It was so painful that for days we had to wear sunglasses even indoors. But it was worth it because at that point began a journey of contrition and self-discovery that honestly was long overdue. Like Adam Kinzinger, we finally faced the truth about ourselves and were moved to weeping by what we saw. How could we be so darn racist? That's the question we're asking ourselves tonight in the fading light of this year's Juneteenth observance. So that was the old us. We've shed it like a snakeskin. It's time to change. It's time to do better. It's time to think anew tonight about what we thought we knew about Kamala Harris. So we're going to take a look at some of the sound bites we have mocked on this show over the last year and a half. And boy, doesn't it feel good just to admit fault? Just to say to the world, yes, we're not perfect. We get it wrong sometimes. But not anymore. We have fresh eyes. And with those eyes, we're going to assess this footage in a brand new way. So here's tape of Harris repeating the very same line about, quote, speaking truth. We used to make fun of this. Not anymore. One of the most important values that I think we must fight for is, is to speak truth. And we will speak truth about the injustice. We will speak truth about the inequity. We will speak truth about the unfairness. And let's speak truth. Let's speak truth. So let's speak some truth. And we must speak truth no matter how uncomfortable it may be to hear. We need to speak truth. We have to speak truth. One must speak truth. And that we speak truth. And we must have the courage to speak truth. Someone who has the courage to speak truth. Um, I applaud her courage to speak truth. And let's speak the biggest truth. The biggest truth of all. So our assumption really for decades was that politicians who make a habit of using the word truth are probably really by definition lying. That's why they say truth so often. I'm not cheating, I promise. <laughs> but what really struck us, the old us, was the fact that Kamala or Kamala, you know, it doesn't matter how you pronounce her name. It just doesn't matter. That's the other thing we've realized. She doesn't know how. Neither do we. We'll admit it. But what struck us was that she repeats the same line again and again and again. And our old reaction, this was derision, not exactly Socrates. That was the phrase we used. But that reaction we now see comes from a place of privilege. Evaluate your priors. Deconstruct your unconscious bias and ask yourself, would a moron be capable of repeating the same canned phrase dozens of times with this kind of precision without changing a single facial expression? Oh, no. Try that at home. You can't do it. You're too self-aware. It's impossible for you. 
but not for Kamala Harris. She's got what it takes to repeat herself verbatim for days at a time, behaving as if each time is the first time. <laughs> we stand corrected and we stand in awe. Here she was in May telling us about the importance of, and we're quoting, working together. We will work together and continue to work together to address these issues, to tackle these challenges, and to work together as we continue to work operating from the new norms, rules, and agreements that we will convene to work together on. So again, we laughed at that clip. We've done it more than once. Ah, oh, it feels good to admit it. At the time, we assumed Kamala Harris just got lost in the middle of a sentence. She couldn't find her way out. Together, working together. How do I get out of this sentence? Together. But now we see what was really happening here. Kamala Harris fully understands the importance of working together. Not just working, but together. Working together. And that's not something we should mock. That's brilliant. And science has proven it's brilliant. Ten years ago, researchers at Trinity College in Dublin, Ireland found, and we're quoting, proof that evolution of intelligence and larger brain sizes can be driven by, <laughs> do you know what by? And we're quoting, cooperation and teamwork. In other words, working together. So when Kamala Harris tells us again and again and again that we need to work together, She's not simply repeating some vapid canned soundbite she's been handed by her handlers. No, she's literally, literally moving human evolution forward. She's making the species better on a cellular level. How long till we can fly if Kamala Harris keeps it up? Not long. She does this all the time. She makes us better. And as she does, she does her homework. As Joy Reid told us, it's the dumbing down of America. The dummies here can't see it, but Kamala Harris can because she's done the work. Here she was on Monday talking to kids at the National Museum of African American History. Today is a day to celebrate the principle of freedom. And think about it in terms of the context of history, knowing that black people in America were not free for 400 years of slavery. Okay. So again, there are a couple of different ways to assess that claim. The old us, before we were reborn, and since we're dealing in cliches now, we're just going to compare ourselves to a phoenix. Before we rose from the ashes anew, the old us would have said, wait a second, Kamala Harris. African-Americans weren't actually enslaved for 400 years in this country. That's not true. But we would have missed the point. So what happened here is that Kamala Harris, before her talk, Googled how long was there slavery in America? And she saw that it had been 400 years since slavery began in America, which is true. But she forgot to subtract the years since the Emancipation Proclamation. It's actually fewer than 400, about 150 years fewer than 400, which would put us around 250. But whatever. The point is, that's not her fault. It's Google's fault for not doing the subtraction for her. Talk about falling short of the promise of the internet. And who runs Google? Hmm, Joy Reid, anyone? White men. So there's a lot of white supremacy in Palo Alto, California, as Google has already admitted. Not convinced yet? Well, then you're just a bad person. And you're also jealous. You know what you're jealous of above all? Not just the brilliance, not just the tenacity, 
You're jealous of Kamala or Kamala, doesn't matter. You're jealous of her joy. What did you think when you watched that hearing? I will tell you, Joy, I experienced great joy when I watched this brilliant, phenomenal black woman, jurist, be so smart. And I watched that with incredible joy because it was just brilliance being displayed for the entire country to see. And I cannot wait to see. I, it, that will only be matched by the joy that I experience when I see her take the oath to be the next justice on the United States Supreme Court. Not just brilliant, but also, phen but also phenomenal. So ask yourself and be totally honest and put the thesaurus away. How many synonyms could you come up with in a row extemporaneously? Just top of your head. Not just brilliant, but phenomenal. Could you do that? <laughs> no, you couldn't. And by the way, you don't have her joy. Maybe that's why you don't like her. We don't know. We can only tell you about our journey. Vince Everett Ellison is someone who has thought a lot about this. He is a joyful man. He joins us now to assess our change of heart and the new us. Vince, it's great to see you. Thanks so much for coming on. So we learn from Joy Reid, who truly understands the black experience. I just want you to know, growing up in Denver. Thanks, Tucker. Thanks, Vince. Thanks for, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for, for playing the game. So I went back to Australia in the middle of November last year, and... I think the second day I was there, I logged onto the LA Times website and I suddenly realized I just didn't care very much about what was going on in LA. It was, it was foreign to me. It was completely out of my consciousness. By contrast, I start becoming intensely interested in what's going on in Australia, in particular, what's going on in Sydney. And I start thinking, ah, oh, I think I want to move here. And then when I decided I wanted to move here, suddenly my mind started coming up with all the ways that living in Sydney would be superior to living in L.A. My mind started automatically coming up with reasons why life in Australia is better than life in America. So prior to that, my mind was just coming up with ways why life in L.A. was better than life in Sydney and, and life in Australia. So I was in Australia for two months. I almost decided to stay there. But then I came back to L.A., and fairly quickly I decided, no, I want to stay in L.A. And as soon as I decided I wanted to stay in L.A., I stopped caring as much about what was going on in Sydney and what was going on in Australia. And my mind started manufacturing all the reasons why life in L.A. was just so much better than life in Australia. So a shorthand for, for that cognitive experience is nationalism. I like Leah Greenfeld's definition of nationalism as simply a form of consciousness. So if you live in the United States of America, most likely you will care far more about what happens in the United States than anywhere else. And that's normal, natural, and healthy. And that's that's all nationalism is. And, and one definition of monotheism is that uh, the world makes sense, that there is ultimately one author to the world, 
and that uh, history should be going in a, a direction because when you point out to someone, oh, that's not fair, nobody ever says there's no such thing as fairness. When you point out to someone that's wrong or that's evil, no one ever says, oh, there's no such thing as right and wrong. There's no such thing as good and evil. Nobody actually thinks that way. They can only think that way in the abstract. So even people who are atheists and secularists and agnostic still behave as though there's one God and one moral standard that runs the world. So yeah, you can get into a certain level of abstraction where you recognize that all definitions of, of right and wrong, good and evil, fair and unfair are arbitrary. But none of us can live that way, all right? Someone says, what you just did is wrong. None of us will make the argument, oh, there's no such thing as wrong. If somebody says what you did was evil, no one ever says, oh, there's no such thing as evil. If someone tells you, oh, Donald Trump and what happened January 6th, that was absolutely evil. Nobody responds, there's no such thing as evil. So we effectively live in a nationalist and monotheist world, right? The forces of nationalism and monotheism have shaped our consciousness whether or not we align publicly and consciously and ideologically with either nationalism or monotheism. It's just pervaded our consciousness. So that's what I'm thinking about as I was listening to Richard Spencer critique national conservatism, a statement of principles. So you've got all these national conservatives such as Yoram Mazzoni and Peter Thiel and John O'Sullivan come up with a statement of principles, which I think are pretty good. I think they just reflect reality, right? The way we live effectively is nationalist and monotheist. So you got Michael Anton signing on to these principles. You got Michael Brendan Doherty, Will Chamberlain, Ken Cuccinelli, Victor Davis Hanson, Jim DeMint, Christopher DeMuth, Miranda Devine, Rod Dreher, David Goldman, Spangler, Yoram Hazoni, Josh Hammer from Newsweek. So some interesting names, Roger Kimball, Charlie Kirk, Michael Knowles, Mark Krikorian from the Center for Immigration Studies, Daniel McCarthy. Right, so a lot of big names on the right, and I think the principles that they're signing on for just common sense. Whoa, Julio Rosas has signed on. Christopher Rufo. Carol Swain. She's that, that black academic who's uh, tends towards the conservative. But according to Richard Spencer, all these, these principles, they're gay. Right? So this is what he titled his most recent podcast on his substack, Paleocons Still Gay After All These Years. Socialism. Um, and national socialism, and I guess with a lowercase n and s, he, he um, and industrial America. Rothbard was an anarchist radical. Uh, Sam Francis was clearly interested in, in pushing towards a, a kind of racialism um, and national socialism. And I'm, I guess with a lowercase n and s, he, he was not a Nazi, but he, he wanted to move in that in a direction of national socialism. Um, Gottfried is, is more of an intellectual type. It's kind of difficult to see exactly what Gottfried's agenda is. Um, he, he, you know, you can... Really? I, I don't think I find it terribly hard to see what Paul Gottfried's agenda is. I, I think 
he's a Peliacan. He's the one who came up with the whole turn of pe- term Peliacan. You know, definitely understand what his intellectual commitments are. Um, more German, more metaphysical even. Um, anyway, it, it wasn't long for this world because it couldn't hold together. It was kind of brought together at a time when they had all had the same enemies and were raging against the neocons. They wanted to fight a culture war of some kind and they could kind of get together, but it couldn't work. And I think you see very strong echoes of that. They wanted to fight a culture war. Maybe they felt out of step with the direction that America was heading. And I think they all fought the, the good fight. And so just as it's too soon to understand the French Revolution, it's it's way too soon to understand the lonely struggle of paleoconservatives. So I think out of any ideology, I think paleocon would be the one that I would be most comfortable identifying with. In the 2016 alt-right, it just could not ultimately hold together. There's not much in common between the 2016 alt-right and the paleocon. So paleocons are overwhelmingly an intellectual movement. And uh, the alt-right, let's just say, it's not primarily an intellectual movement. Different dynamic in 2016 is you had this huge online component that was eager to get off, get go offline, as it were, and and you know go have rallies and stuff like that. It just it, it, I, I, that didn't work in itself. But even beyond that, it was just this weird kind of emergency coalition that I, I don't think was ever going to last. Anyway, um, that's who they were. The Chronicles people, in a way, won in the sense that they were. Now, put that in scare quotes, one, in the sense that their vision has more or less defined what paleoconservatism has become. Well, the other versions of conservatism just uh, were shown to be bankrupt. Neoconservatism, like invade the world, invite the world, uh, chamber of commerce, conservatism, we need more and more immigration and, and free trade. I, I think other versions of conservatism simply showed themselves to be inadequate to reality. And so paleoconservatism is the one version that still stands up intellectually, realistically, pragmatically. If you say you're a paleocon, you are inherently, I mean, with, with very, very few exceptions, going to be a Catholic. And you... That, that's, that, that's nonsense. Like the, the MAGA movement is simply lowbrow paleoconservatism. Paleoconservatism was was named and founded by a Jew, Paul Gottfried. There are a disproportionate number of Jews in paleoconservatism. You'll kind of make murmurings about some kind of integralism or Catholic social justice doctrine or something like that, whether that has teeth or not can be questioned. Um, so, and, and you can even see this at things like the Intercollegiate Studies Institute, um, a, a kind of fuzzy maybe fake trad uh, grouping of, of people who are ultimately Republicans, but, you know, much like Russell Kirk, they, they kind of want to have some trappings of the Middle Ages about them. <laughs> uh, All right, you're saying 40, cut it out. I want to hear the latest from Peter Zion. Hey everybody, Peter Zang here coming to you from the D.C. area where I'm about to give a work presentation in a room without electricity because the power has been out for the last 12 hours, so that's fun. Uh, Two things I wanted to talk about today. Uh, The first is the the nature of the economic system that we're trying to wrestle with right now. Uh, The new book is called The End of the World is Just the Beginning, and that's in many ways. Uh, A lot of the tools that we have developed to regulate the economic system, most notably interest rates at the federal bank level, uh, we're not sure if they're going to work anymore. 
the whole idea of interest rates is that you make the cost of borrowing higher so that demand becomes more expensive so that people and companies do less of it. But for that to work, you have to have consumption as a primary drive in your economic system. Most of the world doesn't have that any longer. Most of the advanced world hit the point of no return with their demographic aging back in the 90s. And places like Germany and Italy and Japan now have more people in their 50s and their 40s than their 30s and their 20s and so on. Now, in the United States, it hasn't hit nearly as hard, but we still have this huge generation. The baby boomers are retiring and a very small generation of the Zoomers who are coming into the system. Right now, in calendar year 2022, that's a shortage of 400,000 workers. And by 2034, that number will have increased to 900,000. This is structural inflation. And this is a problem on the supply side. And when you raise the cost of borrowing, it doesn't just impact people who are trying to buy a car or a destroyer. It also affects people who are trying to buy So if Peter Zion is right, then inflation is not primarily caused by Joe Biden's policies or the Federal Reserve. It's a structural problem, which is why we're seeing it all around the world. And yeah, I, I think Zion is right. Build out production, uh, industrial plant and productive capacity and train new workers. It's not clear to me whether in places where this demographic decline is advanced, such as Germany, where interest rates even work anymore. Because you are capable of strangling now supply with it, and it doesn't do anything to demand because there isn't any. The economic rules of the past may not apply anymore. Now, in the book, I call this something called the end of more. The idea that every economic model that we have developed in the last 500 years, whether it's fascism or socialism or communism or capitalism, they were designed for an environment where the pie got a little bit bigger every year, largely because of population growth. That's no longer true. And so when I look at the problems that the Fed, oh yeah, that lovely sound in the background, those are emergency generators. Fun touch, huh? When you look at the problem that the US Federal Reserve is dealing with right now, they would like to get inflation under control and interest rates are the tool they have. But if we're in a world where the normal relationships between demand and consumption and supply and production are somewhat out of whack and might not go back, it's not clear to me that they can raise interest rates to dampen demand without also crushing supply because we've never had a significant problem on the supply side before. And because we are now facing the greatest labor inflation in American history, raising interest rates just might not be the right tool. And then it comes to the executive branch, and that's a whole other discussion of whether the Biden administration is up to the challenge. Okay, so that's the first big topic. I'm not sure that the tools apply anymore. The second big topic, we made the bestseller list. We came in number 12. Everyone, Peter Zine here coming to you from home in Colorado. Uh, a lot of things are going on right now. And over the weekend, there were two major developments that I'm just kind of merged into one video log. So first of all, on Saturday the 18th, the, the Lithuanians, in essence, shut down the rail line that links the enclave of Kaliningrad, the so Russian territory on the Baltic Sea, from Russia proper. Uh, specifically, they say they are now enforcing international European sanctions on Kaliningrad as a separate entity since it is physically separated. And this basically means that even if you could get something in Russia, you now have to go through an international link to get to Kaliningrad and vice versa, since that goes through Lithuania, that's international space, that's a different sovereign country, the sanctions now apply. Uh, so about two-thirds of the economic activity between Kaliningrad and Russia proper uh, passes on that rail line. The other third goes by ship. And probably half of that cargo overall now falls upon the sanctions, whether it's because of finance or technology or energy or whatever it happens to be. Now, Kaliningrad is a weird little pocket of territory in northern Europe. It used to be the easternmost position of German power. It was part of Prussia. Uh, it was a military base that they used to project power east and north. And in the aftermath of the World Wars, it became Soviet territory. And because under the Soviet Union, all of the republics were in a single country, it really didn't matter that it was never formally incorporated into, say, Latvia or Poland. It was instead part of Russia proper, but on a map, it didn't matter. 
When independence for the former Soviet world happened in 1989-1992, however, Poland and Lithuania went their own way, and now Kaliningrad became physically isolated. Now, um, the Kaliningraders and the Russians are saying that they're going to get around this by just having more vessels take maritime shipments from Kaliningrad up through the northern Baltic Sea into the Gulf of Finland and to St. Petersburg. Doesn't work as well as you might think. Um, having a small population like Kaliningrad, only about a million people physically separated, but having that dedicated rail line, you know, that broadly works. It's awkward, it causes a, a series of diplomatic crises, but it physically works. You theoretically could do this by water. The problem is that the water is not always available. Now, Poland and Estonia and Latvia and Lithuania and Denmark and Germany, other Baltic Sea littoral seats, uh, states, are all in NATO already. And Finland and Sweden are on their way to joining pretty quickly. So really, the only chunk of the Baltic that is not NATO is going to be Russia proper. And in that sort of environment, having an exposed supply line is, at, at a minimum, dubious. But it's more than that. There's also a, a climate issue. Uh, unlike most of the bays of the world, uh, the Baltic Sea can freeze. Sweden, Finland, the Baltic states, northern Russia, all of them get a lot of precipitation. Most of that ends up in the Baltic, specifically in the northern arm called the Gulf of Bothnia, and the eastern arm, Gulf of Finland. So Bothnia and Finland freeze over regularly. And in fact, Stockholm in Sweden and Riga in Latvia are where they are, because that's the furthest south that the freeze line normally goes to. Kaliningrad is south of that. They don't freeze. But Petersburg is definitely on the north side. So if you're moving into an environment where you're shipping things by water through a NATO lake that freezes over for a couple months of the year, that does not strike me as a very viable option. Uh, the Russians are already um, shooting solid gold kittens over this. Uh, Kaliningrad is incredibly exposed. And while NATO has always been nervous about it because they see it as a dagger at Europe's heart, and it is, uh, it's also completely surrounded now by hostile states. And in any sort of meaningful conflict between Russia and NATO, Kaliningrad would probably fall in a matter of days, if not hours. So the Russians are doing what the Russians can. They can't get troops there because you'd never be able to get troops on that rail line. And, you know, naval transport has never been the Russians' forte. Uh, they might be able to fly in some paratroopers, but that's not going to really dissuade anyone to do anything differently. And they can't move regular forces because they're all committed on the Ukraine front. Their only option is to put in missiles. There are already Iskander medium-range uh, ballistic missiles with nuclear tips there already. Count on the Russians to put in a lot more and to beat their chest about how they can incinerate European cities. Uh, specifically, the Iskanders are designed to be able to hit Rome, Berlin, and London, and Paris. Um, yeah. Okay, so that's that piece. Uh, the second big thing that's going on is that between sanctions and some difficulties out of the Russians in trying to make life for the Europeans as difficult for their sanctions as possible, uh, natural gas flows from Russia to Europe proper are down by about a third right now, with most of the recent reductions being reductions in the Nord Stream 1 pipeline. This is a pipeline that was operational about 10, you know, 8 to 10 years ago. Uh, Nord Stream 2 is going to come online this year, but because of the war, that's been indefinitely shelved. Now, uh, there's a lot of inconsistencies in European energy policy. And the way it's manifesting at the immediate moment is that the Germans, because they're facing immediate natural gas shortages now, are discovering that they have to go back to coal in a very big way, and they announced their plans to do that this weekend. A lot of Greens uh, in everywhere are already condemning the Germans, but it's worth picking apart what's going on with European energy policy here, because it's a lot worse than most people are suggesting. Now, the Europeans didn't start importing natural gas in mass until really the 1980s, and now imports are over half of total consumption. And that makes it sound better than it is, because most of those domest domestically produced European uh, uh, production, I'm sorry, the domestically produced stuff, the stuff that comes from within Europe, most of it's not within the EU. It, most of that comes from Norway with a little bit coming from the United Kingdom as well. So when you say that imports are half, it's really like imports are 80%, and about half of that comes from Russia. So the degree of exposure here really is high. 
Uh, also, a number of the European countries have steadily pushed nuclear out of their fuel mix for political reasons. Uh, some One little fun thing to keep in mind, that the origin of the anti-nuclear protests in Europe and in the United States in the 1960s and 1970s, that was an FSB operation. So the roots of today's German Green Party in particular are rooted in Russian propaganda. It's moved on and taken a life of their own, so I don't mean to suggest that the Russians are puppeteering the German Greens right now, but you know there, there is a background there that is worth acknowledging when you're making policy that really hasn't been to this point. So then there's the possibility of green tech, solar and wind. But Europe is neither a windy nor a particularly sunny continent. And most of the green tech that has been installed at this point, at high cost, I might add, has been very seriously underperforming. There are three countries on the continent that have decent potential. Uh, make that four. Denmark and the United Kingdom have really good wind potential, specifically offshore. And both of them get a significant percentage of their electricity from that source. Uh, but remember, the UK left the EU, so you can't count UK data in that anymore. And that was about one third of the EU's plan for going green was power from the UK. Second is Greece. Greece has great offshore wind as well, but it's, it's freaking Greece. And no one wants to invest a trillion dollars in generating infrastructure in a country that is already on financial drip feed and has no hope of long-term survival. And then the third one is Spain, which has pretty good solar. The problem is that Spain is almost completely disconnected from the broader European grid. There's minimal pipe and electricity transmission across the French-Spanish border. They're building it up, and at current rates, you know, maybe that'll be really impressive in 10 to 15 years. But even if Spain becomes a massive solar producer, that helps France, which is not one of the countries that has a problem here. So without those, those four states, or at least the, the three bigger ones, you know, there, there's not much else going on here. The Germans like to say that they're building out all this green tech, and on paper, they now have solar and wind capacity installed. That nameplate capacity is capable of generating twice the electricity that they need for their peak demand. The problem is, is that the country is both calm and cloudy, so it generates only a spare, a few percentage points of what it's capable of, uh, and then they use accounting chicanery to make it look better than it is. So, for example, on those six days in August, when everyone in Germany is on vacation and the industrial plant is shut down, and the sun finally comes out, the Germans generate huge amounts of electricity, far more than they could ever need themselves, and so they export it. Those exports are counted as domestic consumption in terms of the amount of electricity that's generated from green sources. Similarly, for most of the year when it's cloudy and the solar is pointless, they use coal plants to generate electricity, but they only count the coal-generated electricity that comes at the time when it's actually directly linked up to the grid. When the sun goes down, I'm sorry, when the sun comes up and they do get some solar, the coal is immediately disconnected from the grid, and the solar is given privileged access to the grid. It takes 36 to 48 hours to spin up or spin down a coal lignite power plant of the kinds that the Germans have. So when solar displaces, they don't count the coal-generated electricity in their numbers so that that depresses the coal figures and increases artificially the green tech figures. Probably they're only getting about 10% of their electricity by a more standard uh, accounting method uh, from green sources. Anyway, natural gas is definitely not being provided in the volumes or the reliabilities that enables most of the European economic system, especially the electrical grid, to function in the way it was designed. And so what the Germans are doing right now in removing natural gas from the mix because they have no choice and putting coal back in, some version of this is now going to happen across most of Europe. And that has three big outcomes. Number one, it means you have minimal natural gas allowed to be used to generate electricity. It is now going to be mostly hoarded for industrial use. Second, there's not enough even for that. Or there won't be soon because even if this little spat is resolved, there's going to be another one. And the natural gas that's transported by pipe across Ukraine, that is not long for this world. 
So what natural gas they can get access to is going to have to be hoarded and reserved for industrial use, and then it's going to have to be rationed for the industrial sector. Now that suggests that what is already an energy-induced recession in Europe is about to expand to become a broader industrial recession that will last a significant amount of time uh, because there just isn't a good alternative at all. And then third, of course, an absolutely massive coal buildup across Europe, starting in Germany, but continuing on, which will completely obliterate Europe's climate goals, even with more accounting creativity. All right, those are the two big things. There's more things going on, so buckle up. The next few weeks as regards to the Ukraine war are going to be particularly intense. We have European insurance sanctions on Russian oil exports that are now in place, so we're probably going to see NATO navies seizing Russian oil tankers before too long. Uh, the World Food Program is loudly and accurately screaming about famine starting this year in a number of countries, and if anything, they're not thinking loud enough. About half of the foodstuffs that the WFP distributes to the poorer countries of the world that are food insecure, it comes from Ukraine, and they can't get any. So the most specific uh, prediction that Zion's made recently is he says that our, our current or, or the next version of the iPhone will be the only new version of the iPhone for many years because Apple has gone all in with with china and uh, zion sees china falling apart therefore apple's not going to be able to come out with regular new versions of the iphone so that's interesting here's mickey kaus raising some questions about election integrity this is pretty racy stuff so please use this information responsibly and if you can't handle it then then tune into another channel into the script of billions not david siegel the guy who wrote love story that's Eric Siegel. Oh, no wonder it's not him. Is David Siegel the um, uh, writer for the Washington Post who was in a band called the Brimmers with Eli Addy? Uh, who named after the, which Brimmer? Arthur, Ian, or the guy who went to they, Iraq? They're named after the guy who... Okay, I didn't have this queued up Wallace. correctly. That's Arthur, right? My bad. I don't know. but uh, Please, he, um, please bear with me. There's shocking yeah. material coming up. It's, well, it's because, I, I think it's because they, they debuted in the same shopping center that he committed the crime in or something. I don't know. Huh. Anyway, um, screenwriters do that sort of thing. Uh, there was election fraud news out of Wisconsin, and basically the Republicans commissioned a former Republican justice of the Supreme Court. If you remember, the state Supreme Court was very polarized between uh, Republicans and Democrats. So I assume this guy's a diehard Republican. And he claims to have found evidence of two, two kinds of voting fraud, as it was billed. Uh, one is in nursing homes, they, you know, they, they, they clearly... Uh, did not do what the law says they should do, which is send special representatives in the nursing homes to take every person's vote who's unable to vote. Uh, they were told by the election commission, you don't have to do that. We have COVID. We'll just mail them ballots. Uh, they claim to, to, to show that, like, in a lot of places, the ballots were 90, 10, or even, you know, and, and they voted 100 percent, 90, 10 for Biden versus Trump. And that is suspicious, but there was only, like, one actual anecdote that I read uh, of a uh, you know a nursing home person who said she went to vote and they said oh you've already voted you voted in your nursing home and she didn't remember it well she's old maybe she didn't remember it you need like a hundred of those anecdotes uh, but he, he but he's trying to say well let's have an investigation and come up with those anecdotes and I think they should but they don't have the smoking gun yet it's very similar to the January sixth commission the second thing is uh, you know obviously one of the big controversial influences on the election was Mark Zuckerberg funding the election administration and in Wisconsin apparently funded it in five. Democratic, heavily Democratic counties, and they use it to use get out the vote in the Democratic counties. And he argues that that was illegal and that it was. Uh, what do you mean he funded the election administration? I he mean, gave money to the city election administration, said, Here, you have election administration, it has a budget of 1 million, now it has a budget of 10 million, okay, or whatever the number is. 
and you can hire people. And sometimes they hired a Zuckerberg person. Anyway, they didn't falsify votes, but they, you know, staged get out the vote campaigns and put drop boxes everywhere and did other things to maximize the vote. But they, because of the way the funds were distributed, they maximized votes in Democratic districts and not Republican districts. Um, and it's an interesting question whether that's a violation of equal protection or not. Uh, but, you know, whether or not it is, it's, uh, and I guess, I don't know if I would say it is or not, uh, they should stop it. It should be banned. So, uh, uh, but the idea that they should like put people in jail for this or declare it illegal or, you know, void ballots is sort of crazy. But it, it, the Zuckerberg thing was a big effect. And that's what the right has sort of settled on as their obvious reason why the election was rigged is because of all the Zuckerberg money flowing in. And, and they have a point. Uh, yeah, no, Bannon was obsessed with that. Uh, right. That is really good analysis. So if Zuckerberg money is flowing in to increase voting in Democratic strongholds, but not flowing in to increase voting in Republican strongholds, that does distort and damage election integrity. Uh, the for, the, for the other point about the nursing homes is Biden won Wisconsin by 20,000 votes and there are 60,000 people in nursing homes. So not crazy to think if there was a lot of fraud uh, that it might have helped turn the tide. So, not Right. So that kind of ballot harvesting is worthy of a great deal of skepticism. So Ricardo is back. Like when, when Ricardo's not in the chat, I, I tend to be a pompous bore. But when Ricardo is in the chat, I sometimes come out of a boring pomposity and start to become human uh, briefly. So Ricardo says, Supreme Court is so based and red-pilled. John Roberts getting red-pilled in real time by leftist terrorism. Luke also getting woke on election integrity. <laughs> this is a good day. Yeah. So for everyone who wants to claim that, you know, politics doesn't matter, well, this U.S. Supreme Court decision 6-3, restoring gun rights, seems to matter, right? This, this U.S. Supreme Court that seems based in red-pilled seems to matter. Not crazy to investigate. I think there's huge potential for mail-in ballots leading to voting fraud, not only in nursing homes, but uh, elsewhere. Mm-hmm. So anyway, those two developments, they're not conclusive. They're sort of like, you know, pointing fingers in one direction, but they're not crazy either. Yeah, good stuff there from Mickey Kaus. Okay, what's going on with the president? It's kind of a sad story. None of the details will shock you. They will instead confirm what you already knew. But still, as a news program, we feel duty-bound to tell you that today in the White House, Joe Biden was photographed with a card in his hands, a card of instructions. These are the kind of instructions you would give to a child. This is essentially... Now, look, the more prep I do for a show, the better. The more organized my prep is, the better. The more I've got things laid out, like on that card, the better for the show. So when you have your directions laid out very specifically in a very childlike fashion, then you are more at ease and then you're more free to roam. Okay, so when I'm not organized, when I don't have things queued up to the right uh, time stamp, right, then, then I get off track. So what usually happens for me when I do a show is that I enter the show excited about this or that idea, and I may have like seven ideas floating around in my mind. And then as soon as I press, you know, start streaming, it's like there's this great force that just starts crushing me or almost all my creativity just disappears because my so much of my mental brain power goes to okay let me check in on the sound quality all right sound quality is number one 
and then picture quality number two and am i streaming to all the outlets that i want to stream to and do i have things queued up so just because you have very precise directions right that doesn't mean you're a moron or that you're pathetic all right the more prepared you are the more precise your preparation the more detailed your preparation that helps you to to flourish when you have a lot of different demands on you so when i live stream via obs there's a lot less of my mind left and available for thinking and for speaking as opposed to when i'm just talking to a phone you'll notice i, I speak directly to my phone very differently than, than when i'm doing obs because with, with obs there's there are a lot more variables that are taking up space in my mind giving me less freedom to roam and i'm sure we all want joe biden to feel more free to roam elder abuse at the hands of his handlers ron Klain. Anyway, the card contains a series of step-by-step -step instructions for Joe Biden, as if he literally had no idea where he was. Now, these are not complex. It literally reads this. This is verbatim. You enter the Roosevelt Room. You take your seat, period. You thank the participants, period. You depart. What are we to make of this? Dr. Mark Siegel joins us tonight to assess. Dr. Siegel, thanks for joining us. Well, how... I don't, I don't, I'm not quite sure what to say, but I'm, you're the physician. Uh, what's your response to this? Yikes, Tucker. You know, I always say that I, can't, I haven't examined the president, but somebody yes. thinks he needs this note card, don't they? His staff. You take a seat. You ask one question. This explains why only one question he takes. Then you depart. Let me tell you something. There's something called executive function, and I talked about that last time we discussed this. Let me, dis let me tell you what executive function is, according to all the neuroscience journals that I looked at. Plan. Focus your attention. Remember instructions. Juggle multiple tasks. Plan your actions. Time management. Organizational skills. And memory. All the things that if you didn't have them, they'd put it on a note card for you. They'd control you with it, right? And you know what? Guess what he is? He's the chief executive. Another word, cognition, means thinking, means knowledge. And why did the president not have a cognitive test last year during his physical? So the, the card, and I should have noticed it at the outset, I was looking at it here, the U is in all caps as if to remind the president of the United States who he is. That, that, seemed, that seems ominous to me. It seems ominous to me, too. 40 million Americans suffer from mild cognitive impairment. They can have periods of forgetting, memory issues, disorientation, not remembering where they are, who they're talking to. We've seen repeated episodes of that with the president. Again, neurologists saw him last year, hasn't been tested. And I've also said to you on the show that he had aneurysms in his brain and bleeding that was repaired surgically many years ago in 1988 that can lead to this, as can the rhythm problem he has in his heart, can lead to issues with memory and cognition. This man is making decisions that affect us all. The chief executive of the United States of America needs the highest executive function of all of us, not the lowest. So pretty dramatic difference between Joe Biden and Trump. I mean, Trump wasn't going around with, with cue cards. Uh, Trump would give his speeches off the cuff. And, and such a dramatic difference in the quality of the children produced between Donald Trump and, and Joe Biden. This story about Joe Biden here reminds me a little bit of a story about Muhammad Ali. So he, he wanted to counter press uh, speculation that uh, boxing had had 
made it uh, difficult for him to articulate clearly. So he gave a brief interview to the BBC. But when the BBC ran it, they had to run teletype under his words because his his speech was so garbled. And uh, Al Ali, I mean, he started off with like a 78 IQ to, to begin with. So I think Joe Biden probably started off with about a a 125 IQ at his peak, maybe 120. Now he's probably down to 110. It, is it possible for the public, which I think deserves it, to get a precise accounting of whatever pharmaceuticals he may be prescribed by the White House physician? There's a long history of presidents getting doped up by the White House doctors. Can we get an answer on that, do you think? I think we should demand an answer on that. Look, we have a long history of being fooled, of being hidden. You know, Woodrow Wilson, who had the Spanish flu and famously led to the Treaty of Versailles going awry. We've had so many problems over the course of the years. And all they did was attack President Trump, who did take a cognitive test. And by the way, a neurocognitive test here, a, a neuropsychological testing would show exactly what's going on here. We need to demand. Wait, wait, and IQ tests just just like racist bro i mean are you are you demanding an iq test uh, a racist test for, for our president we can't have objective but yet racist data uh, on the president 40 frequently gets disoriented and lost in la somehow he always ends up at a bathhouse just uh, curious that and yes any medication he's on should be open we have to have a, a, a fitness test to anyone that's a, a leader of any kind over yeah. a certain age, certainly. Close to 80 years old, certainly. All of that we demand to know right now. He says he's running again. Maybe someone could ask this in a White House briefing, you know, because I think people have a right to know. Dr. Siegel, I appreciate your, maybe your he'll assessment. Forget, Tucker, maybe he'll forget that he said he was running again, right? It's entirely at this point. Anything is possible, unfortunately. Thank you very much. Thanks, Tucker. Now, keep in mind... Ron Klain, the White House chief of staff, is reminding the president who he is. And as that is happening, many actual Americans, people who live in the country, can't afford to drive their cars or buy groceries. But no one in Washington seems concerned about this. The economy is fine as far as they're concerned. In fact, Democrats say it's a perfect time to splurge for real. Our own Bill Malugin is tracking this story for us. Hey, Bill. Hey, Tucker, that's right. So there is an assortment of media figures and politicians alike who seem to be telling Americans just don't believe your lying eyes when it comes to the prospect of a recession. And the chairman of the Federal Reserve certainly doesn't seem too worried as he was literally whistling around Washington today as Fox's Hillary Vaughn was trying to question him. Take a look. Chairman Powell, should the president stop calling it Putin's price hike? You told lawmakers yesterday that inflation started well before the war in Ukraine. So should he stop saying it's Putin's price hike? And on top of that, Washington Post finance columnist Michelle Singletary demanded that Americans who are doing well, just everybody calm down and back off when it comes to inflation. Take a listen. You gotta stop complaining when there's so many people who literally the inflation rate means they may only have two meals instead of three. There are Americans who did extremely well in the last two years in the market. You still have your job. And yeah, it's costing you more for gas, but guess what? You're still gonna take that holiday, that 4th of July vacation. You could still eat out. So I'm gonna need you to calm down and back off. But overall, many Americans are not suffering as much as they think they are. 
And not to be outdone, MSNBC's Stephanie Rule said it's the media's fault for talking the U.S. into a possible recession. Another thing the Fed can't do, though, is control media hype or political agendas. In some ways, we're talking ourselves into an inflation frenzy. When you talk about it every minute of every day, then every possible business out there raise their prices. Why? Because they can. Because no one's going to argue, why are you raising that price? Mm, inflation, inflation, inflation. And if you can't afford your gas or your groceries, there's no need to worry. Democratic Congressman Ed Perlmutter says you can just get a Peloton for much cheaper now. Take a listen. I think all of us would agree we don't want to see inflation, but we went through a pandemic and we've had shortages. So you could go get a Peloton today at half the price you would have paid a year ago, Mr. Style. And, I, and I will. You can't I, eat and a I, Peloton. I, you can't eat a and Tucker, on top of all of that, the L.A. Times wrote an article saying a recession looks inevitable, but it might not be that bad. There was an opinion piece in Bloomberg that said inflation is just a lesson in appreciating what you had instead of complaining about losing what you had. And the New York Times wrote a piece saying a bad economy might end up actually being a good thing. We'll send it back to you. You'll own nothing and you'll like it. Eat your bugs. Half price Pelotons. <laughs> you can't. I assume all that's real, Bill Malugin. We trust you. That's unbelievable. Thank you. Thanks. So the January 6th committee, the Liz Cheney, Nancy Pelosi committee, has been impaneled for quite some time now, but somehow they spent no time on what was actually an insurrection in Washington, D.C. two years ago. We don't need to guess about why, but it is worth remembering what actually happened in Washington, not on January 6th, but before, when the orange man was still president, so it was totally cool. We have the tape. We'll be right back. Biden's staff prepared card today. You sit in your seat. Apparently, Ron Klain was worried Biden was going to sit in someone else's seats. They put it in all caps. You sit in your seat. All right. Thank you, Mr. President. Well, the January 6th committee has investigated an insurrection in Washington. The insurrection. But what's interesting is there's been no investigation of any kind into an actual insurrection that happened two years ago in May of 2020. A mob set fire to a historic Episcopal church right outside the White House, and they injured more than 60 Secret Service officers as they tried to storm the White House grounds. Now, Donald Trump was inside, so the media applauded it. And so the siege of the White House continued all month. On June 22nd of 2020, that was two years ago this week, the mob tried to tear down the Andrew Jackson statue in Lafayette Square right in front of the White House. Do you remember this? No one else seems to. Here's the footage. a lot of questions like where were the police they had ropes around the statue right in front of the white house and no one was doing anything about it there's a lot of blame to go around for that by the way a lot but that's not an insurrection well not if no one remembers it even happened and that's why that footage has been memory hold you probably haven't seen it in the last two years that's because what's happening in Congress right now is not about an insurrection it's about using the mechanics of the federal government which you pay for 
especially the intel and law enforcement agencies, to crush and silence anyone who opposes the Democratic Party and Joe Biden. That's not an overstatement. One of the political opponents of the January 6th committee is targeting is a man called Jeff Clark. He was assistant attorney general during the previous administration. Before dawn on Wednesday, which is to say yesterday, a large group of armed federal agents wearing body armor with weapons raided Jeff Clark's home. They dragged him into the street in his pajamas. Now, what did Jeff Clark do wrong? Was he selling fentanyl? Was he human trafficking on the Mexican border? No. Jeff Clark did not commit any crime. What he did wrong was calling for an investigation into voter fraud. We are happy to have Jeff Clark join us now. He's a senior fellow with the Center for Renewing America. Jeff, thanks so much for joining us. This is a, a, a almost, I mean, this is a Soviet account, really. So tell us what happened and why. It is, and good to be here, uh, Tucker. So yesterday at about just before 7 a.m., there was loud banging at uh, my door, insistent banging. So I just rushed down as fast as I could. I you know, quickly figured out you know, that there were agents there. I opened the door and asked for the courtesy to be able to put some pants on uh, and was told, no, you got to come outside. So uh, I came outside. They swept the house. Eventually, they let me go back inside and uh, put the pants on. But uh, then, you know, by my count at one point, uh, you know, 12 agents and two uh, Fairfax County police officers uh, went into my house, uh, searched it for three and a half hours. They even brought along something, Tucker, I've never seen before uh, or heard of, a uh, electronic sniffing dog. And uh, they took all of the electronics from my house. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I don't blame the, the agents. I think, it, you know, what you're talking about in terms of weaponization is really about uh, who's pointing the agents and telling them what to do, Tucker. So Peter Strzok, who worked at the FBI, is effectively a criminal, in my view, never really punished, sent out a tweet today mocking you and gloating over the fact that the Biden administration stole your cell phone and will now be reading all of your private messages. I mean, at what point can we say the Department of Justice, where you once served, is a political instrument? It's completely out of control. Yeah, I, I think this is highly politicized. And it's also part, uh, Tucker, uh, if you didn't know it, of a nationwide effort yesterday. There were multiple states where multiple people were roughly simultaneously uh, you know, rated for their electronic devices. Uh, and that obviously requires a high level of coordination. And look, um, with the hearing uh, that was pointed at me and, and targeting me today uh, with, uh, you know, the, the uh, special audience member of Sean Penn, so you know this is Hollywood, uh, you know, the, the very next day, you know, it, it looks highly coincidental. And Tucker, you know, I just don't believe in coincidences. So, you know, Chris Ray, of course, who runs FBI. You probably know Merrick Garland. He's been around Washington a long time. Both of them have decided to pervert and corrupt our most basic institutions on behalf of Joe Biden. Would, did you think they were capable of doing that when you worked there? I argued in front of uh, Merrick Garland. I got a very uh, respectful hearing. I think uh, I was going to win that case, but we wound up actually uh, settling it in the shadow of what, you know, everyone assumed was going to be a victory. Sometimes that happens in financial cases. And uh, Chris Ray was with me in the Justice Department. He was just in the criminal division back in Bush 43. So I do uh, know both of them. And, you know, I, I just think we're living in a, in a era 
that I don't recognize. And increasingly, uh, Tucker, I, I don't recognize the country anymore with these kinds of Stasi-like things happening. Yeah, this is Stalinist. At some point, somebody's going to fight back and it's going to get super ugly. I, I pray that doesn't happen, but I, I think it probably will. It's just very, the whole thing is so sad. And I'm sorry that you were caught up in it in your pajamas. Like they need, they could have just called you. <laughs> it's outrageous. Jeff Clark, well, I appreciate you coming on. We, I hope you'll come back lot, and Tucker. tell us where this winds up. It's creeps. Thank you. Will do. Thanks. So hundreds of millions of people took the COVID vaccine. We were told we had to. We'd be fired from our jobs if we didn't. Anyone who was against it was a science denier. And a- Okay. Okay. Thank God for the vaccines. Um, Let's talk about so, Judge Katenshi uh, Jackson. We have, a, we have Judge Jackson, who is up for confirmation. She'll be confirmed. I know very little about her. What, what I would like to know is, is there any position where she deviates from democratic liberal orthodoxy? You know, for me to enthusiastically support her, I would just take one. It wouldn't take a lot. Just one indication that she's a free thinker. I mean, usually there's one. I hope you don't think uh, I have the answer to that question. No, I just, looking at her hearings, I mean, she's got to get grilled, right? Looking at the hearings, I would want to know, is there any, any spot where she deviates from the party line? And I bet there isn't. She'll get confirmed anyway, but uh, that's what I worry about. Um, yeah, so Judge Katenji Jackson, she would not fit in, in, in a list of the top 100,000 legal minds in America. But because she's the right race and the right gender, she gets appointed to the U.S. Supreme Court. I mean, I worry about court, her being a non-deviator. I think the court should have a, a wide variety of people. I think it should have people on the radical left, should have people on the radical right, should have a whole bunch of people in the center. But if, if she's a crazy lefty, that doesn't bother me, as long as she's a crazy lefty who thinks for herself. Uh, does that make any sense at all? I mean, it's sort of a aesthetically um, pleasing view. But uh, like I, thought Larry Tri- I thought Larry Tribe should have been on the court. Okay? According to, to Andrew McCarthy, <laughs> please, are you trolling me? According to Andrew McCarthy, uh, She's she's on the court precisely because she's a completely reliable vote. The other ways he characterized her are as I think there's almost a quote, a bad writer and an unclear thinker. Okay, but then that's Andrew um, McCarthy. I um, uh, yeah that that seems that seems pretty accurate. Bad writer, unclear thinker, never has an independent thought of her own. And now on the U.S. Supreme Court. All right, here's more from Richard Spencer talking about paleocon still gay after all these years. Sorry if I represent them a little cynically, but I am cynical about them. Anyway, um, that really is what paleoconservatism is all about. And uh, I, I, it is interesting just to read this document that they have issued. This, I imagine this was written by... Harzoni and probably Daniel McCarthy, if I were just to guess, who's published at the American Conservative. Daniel McCarthy has a history there, as do I. Um, Harzoni is an interesting figure. Harzoni is a Hebrew scholar who is Israeli, and he came out of the woodwork. I don't think anyone had heard of him on the American scene by writing this book that is uh, something like The Case for Nationalism or something like that. Uh, A very basic book. But um, he threw himself out there. He has the kind of plausible deniability, you could say, of being an Israeli Jew so that this isn't Pat Buchanan, who would make, you know, some anti-Semitic, you could say, rumblings and was um, generally, I, I would say generally would take a much more sympathetic view to the Palestinians, if not take their side entirely on the Israel question. 
Um, now you have an Israeli Jew who's kind of lightened everything up and made everything very basic. And um, but I, th I think in a smart way, I think Harzoni is a brilliant guy, a brilliant operative. And so he's created these conferences where, you know, Peter Thiel will go Josh Hawley and so on. And they'll spew off a bunch of uh, meaningless nonsense, basically. <laughs> That's my impression of it. What's uh, so, so meaningless about nationalism? What's uh, so meaningless about getting a conservative Supreme Court that is restoring a lot of rights that were taken away from Americans under leftist rule? Uh, what's so meaningless about reconfiguring our trade policy so that it's more in the interests of American workers? What's uh, so meaningless about one of Donald Trump's greatest accomplishments significantly slashing immigration? What's so meaningless about another one of Donald Trump's greatest accomplishments uh, significantly increasing real wages for the uneducated? Uh, Donald Trump also kept us out of any new wars and uh, effectively wound down the war in Afghanistan. I, I don't see exactly what's so meaningless about these paleocon light accomplishments under Trump. As you will see by my discussion of this statement of principles, it's all very fuzzy and hazy. Um, I'll try to draw some important things from it, but I, I think the, the main thing about it is that they have no ability to enact any of this. And um, so I... I so because they have no ability to enact any of this, uh, therefore, it's pointless, right? It's a bunch of right-wing intellectuals signing off on a statement of principles of uh, support for nationalism. And, and, and you're going to judge a, a statement of principles by various intellectuals on the basis of whether or not they can implement these things. Well, many of these things were implemented to varying degrees under Donald Trump. I get it how every manifesto is a kind of an assertion. You know, in a manifesto, you don't necessarily make an argument, make a case, or analyze something. You assert yourself, your will. This is what we want to do. Um, but the problem is they, they seem to be living in some other country. Um, they live in Paleo-Stan, which is some um, quaint little uh, uh, monarchy, parliamentary monarchy, often often Europe. Um, it kind of looks... Okay, th this critique just doesn't make any sense whatsoever, all right? We, we know what uh, paleocons stand for. They stand for nationalism, for a recognition of uh, the reality of, of group differences. They say that we shouldn't put uh, GDP growth ahead of every other concern. And uh, they are for traditional conceptions of the family. And they're skeptical of new ways of configuring human society localist good country uh, it's most likely catholic in orientation connected to its roots uh, they seem to want to live in that country and not in the sprawling american empire in which they actually live and in that sense manifestos like this aren't even wrong they're they're just useless you, you can learn about the the fantasy life of these uh oh okay so th this manifesto is useless even though it has a million times more influence over real-world accomplishments than Richard Spencer's alt-right. So Richard's primary critique of this manifesto is that it stands no chance of being enacted. Well, the, the Hale Trump figure, right, his alt-right agenda, what are the chances of that being enacted? All right, the, the Statement of Principles by the Edmund Burke Foundation is a million times more realistic, a million times more likely to be implemented to varying degrees than Richard Spencer's pointless crusades.
generally boring figures, but you you don't really actually learn anything about reality. Ah, see, that's his real critique. These other intellectuals, they're boring. I'm exciting. I'm cutting edge. I'm constantly coming with new hot takes, but these other guys are boring. Well, well, guess what? Uh, Doing good is not usually as exciting as doing bad. Building up a good society, turning things around, uh, creating a community, creating families, creating a prosperous business, right? These good, solid things are not exciting, right? They they will strike, they will strike uh, cocaine feeds is rather boring, but the the ideal life for, for most people is just going to be two or three notches above boring, right? The exciting life is almost never the good life. Right, so Richard Spencer's definitely had an exciting life, but is the world a better place because of his public pronouncements and, and his public activism? Yeah, that which is good is usually somewhat dull, somewhat boring, not nearly as exciting as that which is bad, right? not nearly as flashy, not nearly as unexpected, because the basic principles of what is good and what works a fairly humdrum, right? We all have within us a basic consciousness of nationalism. When I was in Sydney for two months, I didn't think about what was going on in LA very much because Australia had the ultimate reality to me. So we all basically live with the the consciousness of nationalism and effectively the consciousness of monotheism. Even if we identify as an atheist, we still can't help but live where we see the world through a lens of right and wrong and ultimate meaning, and we we see history as having a direction. Anyway, maybe I shouldn't bash them too hard. Let's give them their due. Um, The following statement, so I'll just read this out and I'll comment. So I'm I'm quoting here, note the following statement was drafted by Will Chamberlain. That is one stupid person. Uh, Christopher DeMuth, I believe he's from ISI, Rod Dreher, Yoram Herzoni, Daniel McCarthy, Joshua Mitchell, N.S. Lyons, John O'Sullivan, Blast from the Past, and R.R. Reno, I have no idea who that is, on behalf of the Edmund Burke Foundation. The statement reflects a distinctly Western point of view. So John O'Sullivan used to regularly publish Steve Saylor in National Review. I mean, John O'Sullivan was the last great editor of National Review. So uh, the man's a giant. Does it? However, we look forward to future discourse and collaborations with movements akin to our own in India, Japan, and other non-Western nations. I doubt they would put China in there. Signatories, uh, signatories, institutional affiliations are included for identification purposes only. Do not imply an endorsement, blah, blah, blah. All right, here we go. So you're reaching out to non-Western countries. Well, unite. We are citizens of Western nations who have watched with alarm as the traditional beliefs, institutions, and liberties underpinning life in the countries we love have been progressively undermined and overthrown. Rather boilerplate there. Yeah, guess what? Reality is boilerplate. Morality is boilerplate. The stepping stones to success in family life, in personal life, in getting off addiction, uh, turning your life around, tend to be rather boilerplate. The ingredients of of building something good and lasting and profitable and pro-social, all those ingredients tend to be rather boilerplate. Yeah, they're not exciting. They're not as thrilling as a, a Richard Spencer live stream, and I, I tip my yarmulke to him. He, he is a great live streamer. He's he's very 
entertaining and uh, compelling uh, pundit. But exciting is usually bad for you, particularly for for the for those like me who who have some tendencies towards uh, towards addiction. So just because something is boring doesn't mean it's wrong, and just because something's exciting doesn't mean it is good. Um, vague, but also a platitude. It, I every conservative says this. We see the tradition of independent, self-governed nations as the foundation for restoring a proper republic, oriented towards patriotism and courage, honor and loyalty. Yeah, so simply recognizing the power of nationalism, the most powerful political force of the past 200 years, is a welcome embrace of reality. And nationalism is still a dirty word in public life in the West. It's a dirty word in America, not just in the academy, in general. If I were to walk into an orthodox shul and say I'm a nationalist, most people would look at me askance. Uh, most orthodox Jews are conservative, uh, and they frequently get their political talking points from Ben Shapiro and, and Dennis Prager and, and people who give a negative perspective on nationalism, like nationalism is supposed, something that we're supposed to transcend. Well, nationalism is our very consciousness. So returning to recognition of reality that, that nationalism shapes us, I think is a good step. See religion and wisdom, congregation, family, man and woman, the Sabbath and the sacred. <laughs> yeah, recognizing the realm of the sacred, uh, recognizing the Sabbath or a Sabbath, recognizing male-female differences. Right? These are good things. The sacred, the holy, the Hebrew word for holy, kadosh, means difference. Right, recognizing difference, it, recognizing the importance of discrimination between different things, yeah, that's the beginning of wisdom. So, so for Richard Spencer, wisdom and goodness are just funny and boring and gay. Okay, and reason and justice. All right, so you've just kind of accumulated everything that's good by using kind of vague words. Uh, the Sabbath and the sacred. I don't even know what they mean by that. Yeah, well, uh, Richard doesn't understand what the Sabbath means. It means that you take a, a day off, or maybe you want to take it as a metaphor. You take a little time off from the hurly-burly world around us, and you get in touch with, say, your ancestors. You get in touch with the transcendent. You get in touch with currents beyond Fox News, beyond the hurly-burly of daily life. Seems like a pretty good principle for living. And so the sacred, you, you don't understand what, what sacred means, all right? So for me, there's, there's the sacred, right? And the sacred means I don't talk about it very much, right? The sacred is not something that I just toss off on, right? I, I'm not just spilling, you know, every random thought that I have about what is sacred to me, right? The sacred means... That generally speaking, I don't speak of it lightly. I don't joke about it. I don't uh, just, you know, let loose with anything that comes come, comes to my mind. There, there are parts of my life, and there are parts of the community I live in, and there, there are parts of the world around me that I regard as sacred, and I treat them differently than I do things that happen at Dodger Stadium. I, I treat the sacred. With, with a different degree of respect and care than I do that which is not sacred. So when I'm talking about Ron Jeremy, I am much more flippant 
than when I'm talking about something that a, a great thinker is talking about, such as a, a Mark Shapiro. Exactly. Sabbath square Saturday. Um, but this seems to be the kind of Goldilocks, you know, version of, of conservatism. You, it's just, just not too hot, not too cold, just right. Um, it is platitudinous in the sense that no one would read, no one on the right, at least, would read these. And, and actually... So Goldilocks refers to a fairy tale. So for Richard Spencer, the existence of the sacred is a fairy tale. The existence of the different, right, between, say, secular and sacred, that's just a fairy tale. Differences between men and women, just a fairy tale. That, uh, that heterosexual marriage is a superior way of people forming a bond and a family compared to the alternatives, that's just a fairy tale. Many, many people on the left would read this and have no disagreement. So they're kind of asserting something that's rather vague and childish. The Sabbath is, is not vague and is not childish. The sacred is not vague and it's not childish. Right? S support nationalism for the nation state. That's not vague and childish. Right? National independence. We wish to see a world of independent nations. It's not vague and childish. Each nation capable of self-government should chart its own course in accordance with its own particular constitutional, linguistic, and religious inheritance. Each nation has a right to maintain its own borders and conduct policies that will benefit its own people. Yeah, the, these sound like uh, good ideas. Like, what's so childish about, about recognizing you know, these basics of how the world actually does work and is a healthy way for the world to operate. Um, the, I, I would also kind of delve in here. We see the tradition of independent, self-governing nations. Self-governed nations is the foundation for restoring. Really, that, that tradition, how far back does that tradition stretch? I'm just curious. The tradition. About 500 years. Now, now Richard is going to argue, oh, it, it only stretches back a century. We've had self-governing nation states for 500 years of independent self-governed nations. How far back does that stretch? It doesn't, I mean, I'm being sarcastic here, it doesn't actually stretch that far back at all. What they are asserting from the, from the offset is the tradition of the nation state, which is actually a very young tradition and probably shouldn't be years. called traditionalist. 500 you, years The idea of evoking young. all of this, the smells and bells of history is rather ridiculous. The, modern, the, the, the nation state is an entirely modern and liberal concept. Uh, the other aspect of that, I mean, I, you could, I, I the, the nation state, that idea is 500 years old, way before the development of classical liberalism. I kind of obsess, like my critics might say, with the Paris Peace Conference of 1919. I think that was an, an unknown event. It's not something that's talked about. You might talk about. Yeah, yeah. That's what Richard Spencer's critics are always talking about. Oh, that Richard Spencer, he obsesses over the Par Paris Peace Conference of, of 1919. Is, isn't that the dominant critique you hear of Richard Spencer? Man, everyone just mocks Richard Spencer for obsessing over the 1919 Paris, Paris Peace Conference. No, I've never heard anyone, anyone ever criticize Richard Spencer on those grounds. There are 178 other grounds to criticize Richard Spencer. Nobody, I've never heard anyone accuse Richard Spencer of being obsessed with the 1919 Paris Peace Conference. The Versailles Treaty, which was a component of it, but you don't talk about the conference itself. I, I could be accused of overstating its importance, but I obviously that, think I'm right. Um, 
that set down this notion of an independent nation state. But right, because prior to 1919, whoever heard of a nation state? Right? Whoever heard of the idea of an independent nation state? Oh, it, it just came to us in 1919. Give me a break. It's been around for 500 years since England in the 16th century first developed the notion of a nation. But it was an independent nation state within a broader empire sphere of influence. And I don't think an independent nation state can really exist otherwise. So in the Paris Peace Conference, many new things were created. There was a mandate for a Jewish homeland in Israel, uh, extremely important, uh, of equal importance to the Balfour Declaration, which is more widely known. Uh, there was the recreation of Poland. Uh, there was the establishment of the Kingdom of Croats and Serbs, of, of Yugoslavia. Effectively, there was creation of nations that they would kind of fit the pieces together to make it something. Um, it was a so you want to know what what's the opposite of the supposedly you know gay paleocon statement of principles from the Edmund Burke Foundation? It's uh, what's going on around us today, and Kevin Michael Grace. A really good show on this today. 2022. First up, question Why are they here? This is uh, from the website Bare Naked Islam. Lemya Kador, a German born Syrian woman and scholar of Islamic studies, was applauded on TV for calling for a future with no more native white Germans alive. Quote I think that we will have to be aware that we are a country of immigrants. Being German will mean having a migration background in the future. This is what being German will mean in the future. No more blue eyes, light hair, and claiming we're all German. Being German also means wearing a hijab and having dark hair. This is what being German means today, unquote. For predicting the total annihilation of native white Germans, she was given a round of applause by the audience. This is by far one of the sickest crimes on the planet. The elite are trying to wipe out majority white societies with mass non-white immigration, or as they call it, diversity. This is white genocide and international crime, and it does not matter how many times they chant diversity like mindless drones. Diversity is just their code word for white genocide because only white areas are targeted. Let's talk about diversity. Let's talk about cultural enrichment. Here's a piece by Paul Joseph Watson at Summit News. Police in Belgium are looking for a group of migrant background youths who filmed themselves abusing a fish at a water park near Ghent. Some cultures are better than others. A clip of the animal abuse, which was posted on TikTok, shows the youth throwing the large carp in the air before pushing it down a water slide. The incident took place this past weekend at a recreational venue in Blarmissen near Ghent. Most of the individuals shown in the video appear to be of North African or Middle Eastern appearance. Police are now looking for the culprits after numerous complaints about animal abuse were, were made by the public. On Saturday, a number of altercations and disorderly behavior led the police to shut down the recreation area at 3.30 p.m., reports Remix News. According to the ACV police union, lifeguards had to take refuge in a nearby tower after being attacked by visitors when they decided to close one of the slides due to it. Right. So this is basic. All the people that Kevin's just talking about, no sane nation would want those people. So you would think that there would be some investigation about why are we importing people who hate us and work against our best interests. Right. So plenty of immigrants don't hate us. Plenty of immigrants contribute far more to society than they take away. So if we're going to have immigrants, why not choose those who are going to contribute to society rather than those who are going to destroy our society? A lack of staff or supervision. The hot weather. So I know that's a boring point, right? 
let's if we're gonna have immigrants, let let's prefer those who can hold down a job, could be pro-social, who are less likely to commit crime and to need to suck on the the welfare teat than say the 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 the, the native citizens, right? Boring point, right? It's not exciting. It's not a, a stellar hot take, but it's just true and good and right. In Europe also led to a number of other altercations at outdoor swimming pools, including in Berlin, where groups of migrant men were seen involved in a huge brawl. As we previously highlighted, the most popular name for newborn babies in the Belgian capital of Brussels is Mohammed, with Islamic names making up 43% of total registrations there. So it's a fair question to ask, like, which Islamic societies would you like your society be more like? Do you look at Turkey and think, wow, I want America to be more like Turkey? Do you look at Saudi Arabia and think, wow, I want America to be more like Saudi Arabia? Do you look at Iran or Iraq or Jordan or Syria and think, wow, that's what I want more of for my country? And then if you don't want more of that in your country, then why would you want immigrants from those countries? Because those countries were formed by the people who live there. This leader, Conor Rousseau, caused controversy back in April when he spoke about driving through Molenbeek, a diverse area of Brussels, which has turned into a notorious Islamic ghetto. When I drive through Molenbeek, I don't feel like I'm in Belgium, said Rousseau. Migrant background youths previously staged a riot in Anderlecht, Belgium, during which they... So I want to be clear. I don't think there's anything essential to being a uh, Muslim, right? Muslim, just like Christian or Jew, in and of itself, that identity ha- has no meaning, tells you nothing about what the people will be like. You need other factors. So you need to know, you know which Muslims, where are they from, what are, what's their ancestry, what, what's their family history, what are their skills, Right. Same with, with Jews and Christians. Ashkenazi Jews, very different from Sephardic Jews, as opposed to, say, Mizrahi Jews. Uh, traditional Roman Catholics, very different from, say, liberal Unitarians. They trashed police vehicles and fired guns, despite the city being under a COVID-19 lockdown. As we previously highlighted, towns around Lake Garda in Italy suffered a day of war earlier this month after a group of 2,000 migrant youths went on a ramp. So I am for not importing immigrants who create days of war. That's just my preference. Page which saw women sexually assaulted, tourists tourists robbed, and shops smashed. I am not for importing immigrants who commit high rates of sexual assault or any crimes. I know that's boring. It's not an exciting perspective. I think it's a fair, right, and good one. Oh. What's the situation in America, well, and in Britain. This is from John Derbyshire at VDARE. We just got numbers for illegal aliens apprehended on our southern border last month, a tad short of 240,000. That's the highest number of migrant encounters recorded in one month ever. It brings total encounters in fiscal year 2022 to more than one and a half million. That's encounter. So, yeah, it's, it's boring to point out that we're, we're suffering, what, over a million illegal immigrants a year into the United States, right? How, how boring is that? It may be boring. It's true. It's an important problem to to confront, right? It's not sexy. It's not innovative. It's not startling. It's just a huge problem that we face. And this statement of principles is a good step in the direction to getting control of it. Mind, the actual encounter being tallied there is one between an invader and a border patrol officer. 
Either the invader presents himself to Border Patrol with some plausible claim for entry, or he tried to sneak in, avoiding the patrol, but got caught by chance. Some large but unknown number of sneak-ins did not get caught. The good news is that 42% of these encounters were deported, or at any rate, processed for a deportation. Under Title 42, the Trump-era protocol allowing deportation on health grounds that Joe Biden tried to end until he was thwarted by a judge. The other 58% are being processed under Title 8 of current immigration law. That will result in some number of them being deported. How many? 50%? 100%? 10%? I don't know. For a clue, I have this from the Washington Examiner, a story January 24, 2022. More than 2 million migrants were stopped while attempting to enter the U.S. from Mexico illegally in the calendar year 2021. Of the 2 million, roughly 1.1 million were immediately expelled back to Mexico or flown to other countries. Some attempted crossing multiple times, inflating the numbers, but nearly 800,000 were released into the U.S. Darbyshire comments, as dumb as, and treasonous as our current immigration policies are, they fairly glow with integrity, efficiency, and patriotism by comparison with Britain's. I don't think it's an exaggeration to say, and I say it in all earnestness, that Britain's clueless, brainless, worthless government is currently perpetrating the greatest immigration fiasco since Chinese General Wu Sangu opened the gates of China to the Manchus in 1644. I've been reporting to you most recently on June the 3rd about the swelling number of illegal aliens crossing the English Channel from France, more than 10,000 so far this year. This is the fourth year it's been happening. These numbers for these four years to the nearest thousand, 2019 to 2028, 2021, 29. Estimates for this year's total started 50, and once again, these are thousands, so that's 50,000. Essentially, none of these invaders get expelled. They plead asylum or refugee status, although that is an a priori preposterous. They're coming most recently from France, where they could also have claimed asylum. They destroy their identity documents so they can't be deported. The British authorities conscientiously process their bogus asylum claims anyway, putting them up in good hotels while the processing is underway. For three of those four years, the invasion went on with the British government doing nothing at all about it. This, incredible to report, is a government of the Conservative Party, but these are metropolitan progressives led by a prime minister who has, all through his political career, been well known as an enthusiast for multiculturalism. Then, earlier this year, pressure from voters became too strong to ignore. The government grudgingly agreed to do something about the invasion. What did they do? They cut an agreement with the black African country of Rwanda to take in some of the illegals while their obviously fake asylum applications were processed. We first heard that 700 illegals would be shipped to Rwanda to be accommodated in that country's hotels. Britain, however, is chock-a-block with well-funded groups who favor mass illegal immigration. They got busy lawyering. That 700 was quickly whittled down to 130, which is still a good plane loan. By the time the first flight to Rwanda was scheduled for Tuesday last week, the 130 had been further whittled down to seven. The pro right, we have to make those groups understand how much we despise them, right? We have all these groups in our societies that are obviously working to subvert and destroy our societies. Illegal activists swung into action Tuesday, blocking exit routes from the airport detention center and lawyering up a frenzy. By late Tuesday, it seemed there was just one illegal left on the plane. Then some outfit called the European Court of Human Rights issued an injunction to prevent that one illegal being deported. So the flight was canceled. Number of illegals deported, zero. Wait, didn't the Brits unshackle themselves from Europe? How come they have to obey this ruling? Nobody in Britain seems to have any idea either. While all this was going on, of course, several hundred new scofflaws landed in Britain and were escorted to nice hotels. Did I say fiasco? This makes our own border czar, or tsarina, I guess. This makes Kamala Harris look like a strategic mastermind. Uh, Derbyshire continues, as an expert in a spirit of nostalgic affection for the old place, I hereby offer my advice to the British government free of charge. 
arrest everyone who lands in your country illegally, confine them in special secure camps with the right to self-deport at any time. What? You don't have those kinds of facilities? Then build them. When COVID came up, the CHICOMs built a 1,500-room hospital in five days. Children should be placed in care facilities with adequate nutrition and basic education. If I remember my Charles Dickens correctly, Britain used to excel at this. You are welcome to my suggestion that you restore the excellent former system of hulks, surplus ships fitted out with secure cells like those used to handle the overflow from Britain's prisons in the 18th and 19th century. Hulks have the advantage that they can be moored well offshore so that they don't cause offense to the pleasant British landscape the way onshore camp would. They also spare the hassle of getting land rights and so on. Hulks, what's not to like? The tens of thousands of illegal aliens already in Britain are a result of these past four years of inaction need to be rounded up and incarcerated as above. The easy way to do this is to rescind any rights that they have been given to work in your country. To avoid them working illegally, establish an e-verify system based on national insurance number. That's the British equivalent of a social security number with brutal penalties for employers who hire without checking. That should take care of the problem. So Texas Senator John Cornyn, who I suppose is responsible for the latest restriction on gun rights in the United States, uh, he made a joke after uh, making this deal with the Democrats from Breitbart as the Senate voted to advance gun legislation on Tuesday. Right, so he made a joke. Hey, we're going to do immigration next. Great. Thanks a lot, uh, John Cornett. So Bell says, uh, Luke, any tears for Canada's Prime Minister Justin Trudeau? He got the COVID despite three arm treatments. So this is a problem with people trying to make a case for good things. So I'm all in favor of COVID vaccinations. But in public life, people tend to vastly overstate their case for for good things. And then it's going to turn out like they're lying. So to those who said, oh, get vaccinated and then you won't get COVID, right? They weren't telling you the truth. Obviously, you can still get COVID even if you're vaccinated multiple times. What the vaccines do is they reduce your chances of being hospitalized and dying. But that wasn't exciting enough for the advocates of vaccines. They wanted to overstate the benefits of vaccines. And you see this again and again with, with almost everything that's good in, in public discussion. When, it, when, it, when that which you believe is good comes under pressure, people overstate and just start lying about what they're trying to advocate for. And then they end up looking ridiculous a act of nation building and it was a act of legitimizing this new american-led empire on the basis of independent countries and well luke be wearing pink for pride day their pride flags at his orthodox synagogue so no there would be virtually no synagogues displaying pride flags Uh, orthodox jews will tend to be in the majority conservative, vote Republican, and be opposed to same-sex marriage. And it was, in a way, a kind of retort to the burgeoning Bolshevik notion of what the modern world would be like. Is the, is the, is the modern world going to be Marxist and communist and hyper-progressive and so on? Or is the modern world going to be a, a kind of compromise between that? It, modern in the sense that there would be nation states and independence and there'd be kind of respect of sovereignty um but or you know but but also kind of progressive in a, in a in a kind of lighter sense we would 
bow to tradition, have things rooted, but then we would also be offering an answer to the end of these empires that just occurred in the second in the first world war, including the you know the German Empire, the Austro-Hungarian Empire, etc. It was a notion of like that time is done. We won't address the British Empire just yet. That will kind of decline slowly on its own later in the 20th century. But we're going to in the wake of these crumbling empires the people and abdications the people who lost the war we're going to put forward the nation state the independent plucky nation state as our answer to right that's just all brand new to 1919 and the paris peace conference nobody ever heard of an, a nation state prior to 1919 so art bell says bill c11 you probably don't know what bill c11 is but it's a law in canada that will regulate online media services such as youtube or netflix and is going to threaten the way many content creators earn a living by affecting visibility and limiting their views. So it is going to try to force services like YouTube to put up more Canadian content. So here we've got a YouTuber saying, I went to Ottawa to testify against uh, this bill by the Trudeau government. It's going to make it you know, so much more difficult. It's going to introduce nationalist rules on what YouTube can show. Hello, friends. My name is JJ McCullough, and I'm a professional YouTuber from New Westminster, BC. Today, I hope to teach the committee about Canada's vast YouTuber community and why so many of us fear Bill C-11, a bill we did not ask for, do not need, and threatens the success we've already achieved. My channel's subject matter is mostly cultural analysis with a focus on Canadian identity. My video topics have ranged from a biography of Wilfrid Laurier to the history of potato chips to why different political parties use different colors. My most popular video is about a dairy queen in my community, which has been viewed over 8 million times. Professional YouTubers like me earn a living from in-video advertisements, with ad revenue generally correlating with the popularity of our videos. A YouTuber's subscriber count can offer a very rough estimate of their channel's potential audience size. My channel recently passed 750,000 subscribers. In total, my videos have been viewed 230 million times. Now, these numbers might sound impressive, but I am actually one of this country's mid-level YouTubers at best. According to SocialBlade.com, I am merely the 414th most popular Canadian YouTuber. Indeed, according to Social Blade, there are over 100 Canadian YouTubers with over 3.5 million subscribers and over a billion video views. But popularity at this level isn't necessary for success. My friend Joe Lee is a professional Canadian YouTuber who makes videos about life in Vancouver and was recently able to parlay the popularity of his channel into his own clothing line. He has just 156,000 subscribers and 12 million views, making him the 945th most, can most popular Canadian YouTuber. This should hopefully offer a sense of the size of the YouTuber community as a faction of the Canadian cultural economy. The tremendous success and even worldwide fame of many Canadian YouTubers in the absence of government regulation should invite questions about the necessity of Bill C-11. An unregulated YouTube has been a 17-year experiment, and the result has been an explosion of popular Canadian content produced by Canadians of every imaginable demographic. Now, much of the debate around Bill C-11 has centered on so-called user-generated content, which is often implied to mean frivolous social media posts. But Section 4.2 states that government is interested in regulating content that, quote, generates revenues, which describes the sort of videos professional YouTubers create. Regardless, it is important to understand that it is simply impossible to regulate a platform like YouTube without also regulating creator content. It's like promising not to regulate books while regulating what can be sold in bookstores. Hence, Section 7 of this bill states that online platforms must, quote, clearly promote and recommend Canadian programming. But what is Canadian programming? 
We know from the president of television that merely having a work produced by a Canadian is not good enough for the CRTC. Okay, so Art Bell says YouTube is like the Borg. It has taken Twitter and Facebook elements into the community post section. His comments are like Reddit. This is scary stuff, Luke. You are trapped here in YouTube land. No, I'm, I'm not trapped. I just stream on Odyssey if necessary or uh, Rumble, right? Free speech is, I think, in, in better shape now than, than it was two, three, four, five years ago because of blockchain technology. So I'm, yeah, increasingly likely to shift more of my live streaming away from YouTube and towards things like Odyssey. Lennon and Marx. So it's rather curious for Americans to assert this. They seem to, these paleos seem to not understand that this is the kind of rhetoric you assert for other people, <laughs> i.e. the people you rule. You tell them that we'll have an independent nation state. It's not your rhetoric, right, that, that forms nationalism. Nationalism is a consciousness. When the English went around the world, they spread the consciousness of being in a nation. Nationalism makes you competitive with other nations. That rubs off on other nations. It's not a matter of windy rhetoric. It's a matter of consciousness. So as England went from this powerless nothing country that didn't seem to contribute much to the world as it developed the sense that it was a nation in the 16th century it exploded to dominate the world over the next three centuries and take nationalism wherever it went and its strong in-group identity and the competitiveness that comes with it that naturally rubbed off on all sorts of other nations beginning with france so it's not a matter of rhetoric it's a matter of the contagiousness of the sense of consciousness of nationalism, which we all have, right? We all walk around functionally as nationalists and monotheists, even if we don't identify with either. Uh, you know, the United States has never been like this. The United States has never in its history been a nation state. That, that's absolute nonsense. We've had a sense of being American since the 18th century. Like before there was the United States of America, there was a pretty clear and distinctive American identity. Uh, the United States obviously has a history in colonialism. Uh, it also has a kind of... Just because you have a history in colonialism and you also have aspects of empire doesn't mean that you don't have a national identity. And just because you have a strong religious or a, a strong racial identity doesn't mean that you don't have a national identity. Right? Civic nationalism and ethno-nationalism are not mutually exclusive, right? Plenty of Americans are functionally civic nationalists. Almost all Americans are civic nationalists. And then some of them also have an ethno-nationalist identity and a distinctive religious identity, right? People have many different identities. I live in Los Angeles. I'm a Californian. I'm a Dallas Cowboys fan. I'm a convert to Orthodox Judaism. I hold both American and Australian citizenship. I have many identities. I'm a man of hidden depths. That doesn't mean I don't feel, right? Forget feeling. I can't help living in America, walking around with a strong American consciousness, which is effectively nationalism. Everyone's a nationalist, right? Virtually nobody is able to operate without a strong national identity. It's simply in the cultural air we breathe frontier history with this massive you know land uh, uh purchase it made um 
from Napoleon, the Louisiana Purchase, and exploration and um, uh, homesteading and go west, young man, and all this kind of stuff. Yeah, Americans have a pretty strong sense of American identity, and they have for a long time. Good right. day. Good day. Are you ready? Are you ready for today? Are you ready for this? Are you ready? Are you ready for this cavalcade, this consortium, this cabal, this cadre, this convocation, this conspiratorium, the clarity, this unique mixture of some of the most incredible people you will ever meet, the smartest audience, bar none. Smartest audience. I don't say that gratuitously. I don't say that because, well, for any other reason than it's true. It's that, tr it's, it, it's that simple. So please, I beg, I beseech, I implore, I importune you to pull up a seat and to feel our welcome. Let me remind you also, as a, as is ne ne necessary, Please subscribe to this channel. Oh, come on. Please like this channel. Please like these videos. And hit that little bell so you'll be notified of live views. Of course, that means. So, I, I'm not going to go through that. You know the drill. So, please, like this. Be a, be, be a, oh, be a part on, of this thing. Have so much pride. to discuss today. I don't even know where to, to, to start. Have First of all, we're going to talk about the occupant. The occupant party. I think it's important that we designate Joseph. Okay, I'm not, not a big fan of uh, Lionel Nation. Let's get a little more from Richard. Um, it was a frontier society in that sense. Uh, and then also, um, it has been an empire. And it... Right. Just because you're also an empire doesn't mean you don't have a national identity. The English were an empire. They still had a very strong national identity. Right. Just because Judaism and Christianity are different religions doesn't mean that they don't have anything in common. Right. So just because you have an ethno identity doesn't mean you don't also have a civic nationalist identity right people are complicated people are capable of having multiple identities and whichever identity is strongest will depend on the situation and you can also shape a national culture so that it is socially unacceptable to put any identity publicly in front of your national identity. That's what a healthy nation should do, make it socially unacceptable for people to put their religious or ethnic or racial or sexual identity before being an American or before being an Australian. The, 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 the Paris Peace Conference of 1919, when all of these cute notions of the nation state were created, this was a point. The, 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 the cute nations of the nation state developed in, in, the Paris Peace Conference in 1919. This is absolutely absurd. The nation state's been around for 500 years. Of a high tide, you could say, of, of American imperialism, in the sense that Wilson was saying, we have a vision for the world. Combines all of these minority communities. It, okay, it even begins like to is, imagine oppression and its ongoing consequences require us to emphasize this truth. We condemn the use of so state and private institutions to discriminate and divide Fox us against one another on the basis of, of principles. Ah, here's the little turn they're taking. Now, this is what they all do. They deny, at least morally, that race exists. And so no person's worth... No, they're not denying that race exists. They're saying that a strong nation makes it so publicly and socially unacceptable to put any other identity ahead of the national identity. Now, people privately may put various identities ahead of the national identity, but a strong, healthy nation makes it socially, 
publicly unacceptable to put your racial identity, your religious identity, your sexual identity ahead of the national identity. That is what a healthy nation state does. Now, that's that's boring. That's platitudinous to, to Richard. I think it's the the basics of creating a good society. Can be judged by the, his race, and we're all created in God's image. And then they turn it to going against like liberal affirmative action policies of diversity. So it's that little turn that they have. Um, That's a good thing, right? Get rid of affirmative action. America would be a lot stronger. And America's various minority groups would be a lot stronger if people could recognize that, that when individuals in a minority group achieve great things, that they did it on a level playing field, that they didn't have it handed to them by affirmative action. You know, if you're going to be a nationalist, I don't know how you can really get away from the race issue. And you're not getting away from it. You're simply saying that publicly, socially, we put our national identity first. Of course, national identity will have a component of racial identity, right? The English thought that there was something special about their race, but they weren't primarily talking about about odes to the race they were talking about odes to the people to the nation which is a a nicer more socially acceptable way uh, of saying race otherwise you are just a civic nationalist and not that civic nationalists aren't just civic nationalists civic nationalists are also ethno-nationalists they're also religious that they also have other identities it's not like you just get oh civic nationalists and then that's the complete end of your identities people are far more complicated than that different from a neocon i mean oh so if you're a nationalist all right if you're a civic nationalist that's no different than a neocon neocons have a philosophy of invade the world invite the world it's the very opposite of nationalism i mean this is really weak analysis by richard very i would say no but at the very least very few neocons want true open borders that is uh, Brian says there are only two types of geopolitical entities, nations and empires. Nations are voluntary, homogeneous, based on national people. Empires are coercive, multicultural, and parasitical. Well, guess what? There are a lot of situations where both uh, are going on, right? Nobody's pure, right? The United States is a nation. It's a nation state. It also has aspects of empire. Russia has aspects of the nation state, also has aspects of empire. Nations and empires are intermixed, just like democracy and dictatorship. They're not opposites. Every democracy contains considerable elements of dictatorship, and every dictatorship contains considerable elements of democracy. So Nikita Khrushchev was removed from power because Russian leaders didn't like the way he handled the Cuban Missile Crisis. Right? There was a regime change in Russia, in the Soviet Union. The, the national distinctions are just done away with or moot, and you can go anywhere you want and live wherever you want. Wherever you go, you just pay taxes. Nationalists understand that people can go wherever they want. Nationalists understand that people can up and leave. Nationalists understand that, that for certain like elite professions or elite positions, uh, moving to the other side of the world or uh, switching switching nations may may make sense because people don't only have a national identity. So saying that nationalism is important and national identity is important is not saying that's the only good identity. And if you don't put your national identity first, last, and uh, everything in between, then then you're nothing.
nah, to that regime or something like that. Very, very few people actually want this. And so the question really is, how are you going to define your nation? So they aren't really defining it in a way that is altogether different or different at all from the way that neoconservatives define it. They're doing it completely differently. Neoconservatism has the philosophy of invade the world, invite the world. This is the very opposite of neoconservative. You know, if you're going to be a nationalist and you're going to stress independent, self-interested nations, then you cannot get away from the concept of race. Now, when we hear... They're not trying to get away from the concept of race. They're not saying race doesn't exist, right? Saying that national identity is more important in the public consciousness, in, a, in our public dialogue, according to the, the rule of law, right, is not saying that uh, race doesn't exist. Uh, Richard's lost all sense of nuance, lost all sense of, of reality, right? You can love your nation and love your race and love your family and love your favorite uh, football team and love your hobbies and love your profession and love your town and love your state all at the same time, even though that gives you 10 different identities, that's how people are. They have many different identities. And to establish an effective rule of law and to establish a relatively harmonious nation state, yeah, it makes sense to place national identity first and to discourage people from publicly proclaiming other identities as more important than their national identity. Here, race, we think of the kind of big races like whites, Asians, Africans, etc. But race holds for ethnicities it holds everywhere i mean these are concentric circles in some extent yes sexual identity also holds geographic identity how strongly you identify with your tribe with your religion right there are many identities but a healthy nation state says it's socially unacceptable to put any other identity ahead of being an american ahead of being an englishman head of being an Australian. That's it. Bye-bye.